Good morning. It's good to be together. Um, I remember listening to a recorded sermon once um, from a church that I had been to in San Jose. And I don't remember exactly what subject the preacher was preaching on that day, but I know he had to get into the Old Testament in order to set the stage for us to understand what he was saying. And before he did that, uh, he said something like this. I remember it very clearly um, because it was so shocking to me. He said, we're going to go back to the Old Testament and work through some of the boring stuff, history and laws and genealogies, but don't worry, it's going to help us get to the good stuff. And you see a lot of people look at the Old Testament that way, especially books like Exodus or Leviticus or Chronicles and Kings. Uh, Prophets like Hosea and Joel seem obscure, and we don't really know what to do with them. Zechariah and Daniel are just plain weird. And we know that they're valuable because God put them in the Bible, so you have to get credit for reading them. But we leave it to the seminary professors to deal with them. Others see the Old Testament as an interesting peek into the way that ancient Jews thought, but they refuse to accept the Old Testament as inspired because they see in it an angry, vengeful God. Have you heard that? And these people fail to understand that it was God the Father who sent Jesus because he loved the world. They decide to take the Jesus of the New Testament, but they fail to understand that it was Jesus as the angel of the Lord who slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians in one night during Hezekiah's reign. In countless ways, well-meaning people discount or ignore or diminish the Old Testament and basically hold to the idea that the Christian's Bible starts in Matthew and Genesis through Malachi, our preface. But if you would, please open the scriptures to Matthew chapter 5 with me. I think that today we're going to see that nothing could be further from the truth. Thanks be to God. We'll be in Matthew 5. I'm going to read verses 17 through 20, which is one section of the Sermon on the Mount, but today we're just going to be dealing with verse 17. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, these four verses are vital to understanding the Sermon on the Mount, and they're vital to understanding Matthew's gospel. See, in our very first sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, we saw that Matthew is the most Jewish of the four evangelists. And what I mean by that is to say that his goal in writing his gospel is to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that they might believe in him and have life. He does this, uh, Matthew does this in many ways, especially in how many times he quotes or alludes to the Old Testament. And if he would just take a survey of Matthew 1 through 4 leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see time after time after time when Matthew says that something that happened with Jesus happened in order to fulfill what had been written by the prophets. 
And so it's no surprise to us here when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. We're already primed for that because we've seen in how many ways he's done that in just four chapters. And Matthew wants his readers to be very certain that Jesus is the Messiah of God, come to save his people from their sins. And so he presents Jesus as the greater son of David who has the right exclusively to rule on the throne of David over Israel. And all throughout Matthew's gospel, he draws out parallel after parallel after parallel to show that Jesus is the greater Moses, the prophet who was to come. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, just as Moses went up on the mountain to receive God's law for God's people, Jesus goes up on a mount to reveal the true meaning of God's law for God's people which at that point had been heavily obscured by the man-made traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. They liberally added to God's law and elevated their traditions, which were not scripture, to the level of scripture. And that created a burden on the people that was beyond bearable. Jesus clears away the smoke. See, Jesus wasn't at all interested or willing to play into the legalism of the Pharisees' traditions, which is one of the reasons he kept going head-to-head with them. He healed broken people on the Sabbath, which was entirely keeping with God's law, but not with the Pharisees' traditions. He mingled with prostitutes and tax collectors, which was taboo to be sure, but not unlawful. He didn't ritually wash his hands before eating, which offended the scribes, but didn't offend God. And because of these kind of things, many people misunderstood Jesus by how radically he broke with tradition while keeping to scripture, that they misunderstood him to be setting aside the law of God entirely. And Jesus wants to make the record straight. And so the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' explanation of what the Christian life actually looks like, a life of honoring the law of God by the gracious help of the Holy Spirit. And he begins with the Beatitudes because he wants to make sure that what we understand is that those who have been made new and only those who have been made new by grace through faith are those to whom he intends the Sermon on the Mount. They are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven by grace through faith. And now they honor God's law truly out of joyful gratitude for their salvation, not in order to obtain their salvation, which is a critical distinction. And then in verses 13 through 16, Jesus shows that these citizens of the kingdom of God, through the gospel, he shows what they do. They are the salts of the earth that preserves truth, goodness, and beauty in a dark world. They are the light of the world to display God's glory through the gospel. And now in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to get into the details of how that looks in the Christian life. Before he does, he needs to clarify that in no way does this do away with anything that God has said in Scripture to this point. Far from it. He shows that he is the Christ of the Old Testament, not the Christ who replaces the Old Testament. He is the coming Messiah, God in human form, and that's why he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Indeed, he emphasizes that he has come. He has come as God's son into the world, and we better hear what he's saying. And the first thing we need to get clear in our minds is that what the law and the prophets are. He says, I did not come to abolish them. So what are they? What are the law and the prophets? 
Well, perhaps you'll remember Jesus' summary of the, all of the commandments of the Bible. It's very helpful to remember a large amount of things, boil it down to just a couple simple things that cover the whole thing. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, the law and the prophets is a Jewish way of referring to the entire Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible because it was written in Hebrew. The New Testament is the Greek Testament because it was written in, you guessed it. Now, the Hebrew Bible is sometimes referred to as the Tanakh, the Tanakh, which is a handy way of remembering the three sections of the Hebrew Bible that go all the way back to ancient times. The T stands for Torah, which is the five books of Moses, known as the Law. The N stands for Nevi'im, which is the Prophets. And in that section of the Old Testament, in the most ancient tradition, that would also include the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and then the prophets we know, Isaiah through Malachi. And then the Ketuvim is the writings, which is the rest of the books. And then there's subdivisions even within that. But that's the big three, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim. This is the law and the prophets. All of these, which we now have as our 39 books of the Old Testament, is what was included in that phrase that Jesus says that he did not come to abolish. This is the Bible that Jesus read, the Bible that he memorized, the Bible that he obeyed, the Bible that he lived by, and the Bible of the early church before the New Testament was added. And what Jesus says about the Old Testament is that in no way, shape, or form did he alter or do away with it. Rather, he came to show the world precisely where it leads. He came to show where the law and the prophets lead. See, in many ways, Genesis 3.15 is the foundational verse that traces through the entire Bible. Back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they had to face the consequences of their rebellion against God. Consequences, consequences which were deep, which were painful, and which were radical. But consequences which were not inappropriate because of how serious their rebellion against the Holy One was. Adam and his descendants would have to do backbreaking labor to provide for their families. Eve and her descendants would experience painful childbirth, and they would both experience death because of sin, an experience that they were never going to have apart from sinning. But right in the middle of God's judgment for their sin is a promise of hope, a promise which anticipates what's going to happen in the rest of the Bible all the way through to Revelation. A promise which he gives even as he's speaking, God is speaking to Satan in the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what's referred to by theologians as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. It's a promise that even though Adam and Eve had plunged the human race into ruin and misery by their sin, one day, one of their descendants would be given by God who would crush the head of the serpent and have victory over sin and death, the gospel from the garden. 
This promise was likely in Eve's mind when she bore Cain. And what did she say? I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She thought maybe this is the one. Maybe this son will crush the serpent's head and bring us healing. But instead, he was a profligate and he murdered his brother. This promise was likely in Lamech's mind when his son Noah came along and he said, this one shall bring us relief. And then comes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a family full of men who received the great promise of God. And yet each one of them fallen, corrupt, and unfit to defeat the serpent. Yet each one looking forward to the promised son. David wrote of him. Isaiah prophesied about his birth, suffering, resurrection, and rule. Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah and other prophets detail his return in glory, and yet century after century after century, the serpent-crushing son of David doesn't come until Jesus. When Jesus was born, it was miraculous. It was foretold, and it was mostly missed. A few people understood the significance of it, mostly shepherds who were outcasts and Gentile wise men whom Israelites did not regard. But most of the Jewish nation to whom Jesus came was oblivious that the eternal Son of God had taken to himself a human nature to come. That he grew up as a carpenter's son in Nazareth, where he was mostly ignored. Not even his own neighbors recognized who he was. And so it's no wonder that when he began his public ministry and began to teach and preach, he ran into a lot of opposition from the Jewish establishment. The man, as it were, came down hard on the God-man. And on one particular day, when Jesus was in an argument with the Jewish leaders of his day about his calling God his Father, which they understood to be exactly what he meant, that he himself was God, he called up witness after witness after witness to his divinity. And to their chagrin, one of these witnesses was the Hebrew Bible that they claimed to love so much. In looking at the Bible teachers of Israel, Jesus said to them, imagine what it must have felt like to be one of those Jewish leaders, the holy men entrusted, as it were, with the scriptures, who lorded the scriptures over God's people. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. See, they thought that by keeping the law of Moses perfectly something which they fooled themselves into thinking that they were doing, they could have salvation. Jesus says, no, if you were going to follow Moses, you'd follow me, because I'm who he was all about. So Jesus goes to the beginning of the Bible, the five books of Moses, and says that they're about him. The law leads to Jesus. This is what we heard read in Galatians 3. The law could save no one, but kept sinners imprisoned under condemnation so that they would feel their need of and anticipate the coming son who would set them free and fulfill the law on their behalf. The one who could save them from their sins and rescue them from the condemnation that the law requires. 
And now that he's come and borne that condemnation on his innocent shoulders, we're no longer under its condemnation, but are sons of God by faith. And the Jews understood that this is what the prophets were about. The prophets were explaining and applying the law to God's people. And if the law was about Jesus, then the prophets were about Jesus. And the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, leads to and culminates in Jesus. That's where the law and the prophets lead. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes sure that no one can accuse him of annulling the Old Testament. How could the Son of God who inspired the Hebrew Bible, who is the point of the Hebrew Bible, and who is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible, how could he ever come to abolish, annul, or set it aside? It's impossible. And yet so many Christians today act as if that's precisely what Jesus has done. They occupy themselves with the New Testament almost exclusively. Maybe they sprinkle in some Psalms, some Proverbs, especially when the kids are misbehaving. And yet Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. St. Augustine memorably said, the New Testament is in the old contained. The old is by the new explained. To have either testament without the other, to be immersed in the new without being immersed in the old or vice versa, is to have a very incomplete understanding of the word of God. When Jesus says that he fulfills the law, that's a rich word. A word that literally means to fill up. He fills it up completely. So if you look at the Old Testament like a divinely given and beautiful cup, Jesus comes and he fills that cup as the living water to the brim. It was written for and about him and was not complete without him. And so we consider how is it exactly that Jesus completely fills up the Old Testament? Well, first, he fills it up in his doctrine. He fills it up in his doctrine. The Bible is full of doctrine or truths about God, about the spiritual life, about who we are, about about what reality is like. It's no wonder then that Jesus, who is the great teacher, gave doctrine that was entirely in line with and grounded in the Hebrew Bible. And even though the Pharisees and the rulers thought that he was contradicting Old Testament teaching, it was they who had so corrupted the Old Testament teaching that when Jesus came and taught it truly, they accused him of foul play. But Jesus comes teaching the word of God, which, again, was at that time only the Old Testament. And oftentimes what he taught was unlike anything the people had heard before. Not because he taught something brand new, but because he taught it in truth, where so often it had been taught in error. And when Jesus taught, even the temple officers had to admit to the Pharisees, no one ever spoke like this man. He brought to light the truths of God that the people had missed, especially about himself and the promised gospel he came to live. See, Paul refers to Jesus as the wisdom of God. And so even when we read the wisdom books like Proverbs or Job or Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon, we see in there a picture of a Jesus life. We see the Son of God fleshed out. Jesus taught true Bible doctrine expositing the meaning of the Old Testament like no one else could. 
It was unlike anything they had ever known. And that's what's going on here in the Sermon on the Mount. And you need to know that if you're going to understand the rest of Matthew 5 through 7 as we go on from here. After explaining his relation to the law and the prophets, Jesus is going to unpack the true meaning of the law, which is not abolished. He's going to apply it to his people's lives. He's going to show how the Christian life looks in light of the law of God. Of course, Jesus also fulfilled the prophecies. He filled them up. We could spend several sermons just surveying the incredible and precise prophecies of Christ and his coming. We already spent time looking at Genesis 3.15 and how that traces all the way through that glorious prophecy of the first gospel. The coming one who would crush the serpent's head. We can mention the promise that from Abraham's offspring, which Andy read to us from Galatians, from Abraham's offspring, Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Isaiah 7 prophesies his virgin birth. Isaiah 9 prophesies his rule on David's throne forever, as well as his deity. Hosea looks at the exodus of Israel from Egypt as a prophetic movement that foreshadowed Jesus' own going down to Egypt and coming back up into Israel. Zechariah anticipates his riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and his return one day to the Mount of Olives. In Deuteronomy, Moses writes that Jesus would be the greater prophet who was to come, like Moses, but greater. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 in detail describe the sufferings and the passion of Jesus Christ for our salvation, anticipating things that hadn't even been invented yet, like crucifixion, 700 to 1,000 years before Jesus came and fulfilled them to the letter. Jesus fills up the law and the prophets, the promises and the predictions. And it is precisely because of this that the Apostle Paul, looking to Jesus, says, All the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why through him we utter our amen to the glory of God. Amen. But not only in his doctrine and his prophecy filling does Jesus fill up the Old Testament, he also fills up the Old Testament in his perfect obedience. His perfect obedience. Have you ever thought about the fact that if God's law is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments, Jesus fulfilled those Ten Commandments perfectly and exactly, time after time. He had no God but his Father, and he worshipped him exactly as prescribed by the Scriptures. He never took the Lord's name in vain, but honored it with his lips and with his life. He always was in the synagogue on the Sabbath, observing the day according to the law, not according to man-made tradition. He always honored his heavenly father, he obeyed his earthly father, and he even as he was hanging on the cross in the moments of his agony before his death, provided for his mother. He, He not only healed the sick and injured and thus restored life, but he gave his own life to save ours. He never dishonored a woman with lustful thoughts, and he faithfully gave himself up for his bride, the church. Rather than stealing, he became poor so that, through him, so that through him we might become rich in God. He is the truth. And he submitted himself fully to his Father's will with a content and joyful heart, never coveting the many, many, many things he did not have, but resting satisfied in who his Father is for him, as he is the fullness of God for us. 
And because of his total obedience to the law, Jesus was the only one who could give his perfect life in exchange for our sinful lives. Without his obedience, we would have no salvation. So friend, are you glad that Jesus completely fills up the law and the prophets in obedience? It's the reason you're sitting here with hope. And if we can say anything about the Old Testament, we can also say that it's a Bible full of striking pictures, living in dramatic illustrations, as it were. And these illustrations are called types. They're called types. A type is something or someone or an event in the Old Testament that points to something else and is drawn out for us by the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, type after type is given to draw out the beauty of Christ who would come as the anti-type or the fulfillment, the actual picture to which the shadows of the types were looking forward. As you read through Exodus, you see the blood of a lamb spread on the doorposts of Israel and you have a type of the blood of Christ applied to the elect that they might not perish but have eternal life. And when you read in the end of Exodus and all through Leviticus, the system of tabernacle worship that so many people get bogged down by, all those details in those books, you see detail after detail pointing to the greatness of Christ who is our high priest who makes the way for us to enter the Holy of Holies by his blood, the sacrifices that are fulfilled in him, the great sacrifice, all the bulls and goats and lambs anticipating Jesus, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And as the bronze serpent in Numbers was lifted up by Moses in the wilderness and beheld by faith for healing by sinners, Jesus, the greater Moses, was lifted up on the cross to be seen by faith for the salvation of sinners who would trust in him alone. Jesus is our bread of life to whom the temple bread looked forward, the light of the world whom the candlestick anticipated. He is the great prophet, priest, and king whom Melchizedek, Moses, Aaron, and David foreshadowed. He was the cloud and the fire in the wilderness, leading Israel out of Egypt, just as he is our Savior who leads us on our own exodus from sin and death into the light of his salvation. Listen to Hebrews 10. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. But when Christ had come and been offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So do you see how manifold the glory of Jesus is throughout all the Bible? All the Sabbaths, all the ceremonies, all the feasts, all the rituals, extremely Christ-centered. Can you think of the Old Testament as dull when it's so full of Jesus on every page? But I would draw out one more way that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. And that is he fulfills the law in his people, in believers. This is something that oftentimes is missed and yet something that is also crucial. You see, friends, we're all born spiritually dead and under the condemnation of the law because of sin. It requires our death because sin has wages. And the wages of sin is death. 
We are unable and unwilling to obey God and bring him glory. And even if we could, and this is a a big if because it's not really possible for sinners apart from Christ, even if we could do some spiritual good, it is far from the holy perfection required by the law of God. And our problem is precisely why the Son of God became man to fulfill the law and the prophets for us. And now, All who forsake their allegiance to sin and self and put their trust in Christ alone are actually made new. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation with a new nature. Your slavery to sin is broken. Your slavery to Christ has now come. And through him and by the Holy Spirit, you can actually start to obey the law that once you never could. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 8 when he says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Did you hear that? Christ is fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law in us as we walk in obedience to God through our union with him, empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is a marvelous truth, and one which ought to fundamentally change the way we read the Old Testament. With eyes that have now been made open to exactly what is going on. The anticipation of a Jesus who by fulfilling that law perfectly makes us new and also a picture of what we, who are God's people, may do to walk with him in love. So where does that leave us in relationship to the Old Testament? Well, if we've understood Jesus correctly, we should be left treasuring Christ and the scriptures that he fulfills. If all of scripture really is leading to Christ, how could we not treasure him and all of the scriptures that he fulfills? But first things first, you cannot treasure Christ in all the scriptures if you've never seen the worth of Christ for you in the gospel. Throughout this sermon, I've pointed out picture after picture of who Jesus is for you. He's the sacrifice given by God for your salvation because you deserve wrath and condemnation for your sins. He is the one, because of his flesh being torn, has now torn the veil that stood between us and God the Father, making a way for sinners like us to enter into the Holy of Holies, finding forgiveness and eternal home in God's family. But if you've never seen your need of him and have not come to him, then you are still in your sins and the manifold glory of who Jesus is in the Old Testament is meaningless for you because you must come. And so, friend, if you have never come and taken hold of Christ and all he is for you, then come to the Christ who came to fulfill the scriptures and save you from your sins. Recognize that you have nothing to offer on the altar of God except to lay hold of the perfect sacrifice whom God himself offered on your behalf. Turn from sin and believe in Jesus and you will see the story of your salvation written all over the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Secondly, I would say, brothers and sisters, that two of my greatest burdens as one of your pastors is that you would treasure Jesus in deep relationship with him and also a deep relationship with all of his Bible. 
And really those two burdens are one burden because to come to the Bible is to come to Jesus and to come to Jesus is to come to him in the Bible, which is where we see him, where we meet with him, where we hear him speaking to us. And yet I know that some have been Christians for years and have never read the entire, entire Bible through even once. This is actually very common, let alone re- reading it all the way through regularly. And I know from experience that it's the Old Testament that is getting ignored. And if that's you, I would ask you to consider what Jesus says about the Old Testament here in Matthew 5.17. He did not come to abolish, annul, or set it aside, but to fulfill it. And if Jesus hasn't set it aside, then please, I beg you, do not you be the one who is setting it aside. Drink deeply of it. See Jesus in it. Today I've given you a brief survey of some of the glorious ways that he's held out for you there. So will you get into your Bibles so that you can follow all of the 66 books where they lead into the presence of Jesus to the praise of his glorious grace? If you've been intimidated by the Old Testament because it's so foreign to you, because there are so many things there that are separated from us by 2,500 to 3,000 years, which is a long time, and it may seem daunting, then I commend to you great resources that help you. This is one of the values of a good study Bible, actually, because when you come up to things that you don't understand, we have some of the world's best commentators writing notes for us right there underneath the text. And some of the best study Bibles I know that I use all the time are the MacArthur Study Bible or the Reformation Study Bible. The Gospel Transformation Bible is a wonderful Bible that specifically looks for how the gospel is drawn out in each section of Scripture. And the ESV Study Bible, those are just some of the great ones out there. And Lord willing, 2021 is right around the corner. And thanks be to God, because we can't leave 2020 fast enough. Lord have mercy. It's a wonderful time, friends, to start a Bible reading plan that will bring you through Genesis through Revelation in one year. There are so many Bible reading plans out there. Just pick one up. In fact, I talked to John the other day about our whole church doing a Bible reading challenge of some kind and just all committing. We don't need to be in the same text, but in some way, shape, or form, encounter all of the scriptures next year. It may be our last year based on how this one is going. But that, uh, the Bible in a year is a very reasonable pace and allows us to be exposed to the whole gospel in the whole scripture every year. And that's one real way that we can treasure our Old Testament and so treasure Christ. And then finally, friends, savor Christ by savoring the law he fulfills. I hope that we as Christians would see our relationship to the law transformed because he kept it perfectly when we could not, and by his spirit, we can now bring him glory by obeying the law with joy. And friends, far from being legalism, if we approach it through Christ, this is worship. It's not a burden, it's true freedom. Because Jesus fulfilled the ceremonies of Israel that were pointing to him, we won't be sacrificing animals or observing feasts or going to a temple. And because we're the church and not Israel, we're not going to be setting up cities of refuge or restructuring our judicial system. We don't need to start each of us getting fields so that we can leave gleanings on the edge of it. But we can see what God's righteous standards are and devote ourselves to them by his strength. They're upheld and restated in the New Testament. And so, again, 
The new is in the old contained, and the old is by the new explained and applied to the church. And actually everything here in the Sermon on the Mount after Matthew 5 verse 20 is going to be the Lord showing us what the law looks like when it's carried out in the gospel in the people of God. I look forward to digging into all of that with you in the months to come. But friends, let's thank God for his son who fulfilled the law we never could so that we might treasure him in the law that he fulfills. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a glorious picture we have of your son given to us in the scriptures, in all of the scriptures. Teach us to see the Old Testament with new eyes, to look for the Savior that's all over it, to see with accuracy how he fulfills it, how he fills it up completely, how he obeys it, how he is foreshadowed in it, how he applies it in our lives, having been our final sacrifice, so that no sacrifice needs to be made anymore, so that there's nothing we can do, either by obedience or sacrifice, to commend ourselves to you, because we never could apart from him, but he is your commended son, who, in whom we have life. Lord, help us to treasure the scriptures that Jesus treasured, to read the scriptures Jesus read, to see him in it, and to, with entire Bibles in our hearts, spread his glory among the nations, beginning in Yakima. All of this, Lord, we are insufficient for, and yet we rest in our sufficient Savior and praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, that glorious third person of the Trinity who loves us and declares to us Jesus and illumines these scriptures to our hearts. Make us a church of the whole Bible for your whole glory. In Jesus' name, amen.